Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Carmen Pugliafito. Welcome to Retina Synthesis. Today, we are hosting Dr. Michael Singer, who is in private practice in San Antonio, Texas, and is also a clinical professor at the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio. Dr. Singer has been a pioneer in clinical trials for retinal disease, and today we're going to talk about the Alluvian implant, the latest information. Michael, welcome Carmen. to Retina Synthesis. Carmen, thanks so much for having me. I always enjoy um, being on your podcast. I, you know, I enjoy both being a presenter and a listener. I listen to it weekly, so I'm very glad that I have the opportunity to talk about this exciting new data. And essentially, you know, we talked about the original Paladin trial, which was a three-year study looking at the flucinolone implant for patients who were treated with diabetic retinopathy, and more particularly diabetic macular edema. What's very important to understand is that basically what we wanted to do is we wanted to evaluate this in real life. So this is a real life study. It's a phase four trial on DME. There were 202 patients that were treated on label with flucinolone implant, and they were followed prospectively for up to 36 months. In addition, there was a retrospective arm that was also looked at these patients to see what happened prior to the implantation of the flucinolone implant. The top line data talked about the fact that essentially what happened over time is when people got the flucinolone implant, what happened was before they got it, they actually needed 3.5 yearly injections, and they actually lost about six letters. Once they received the flucinolone implant, they gained 4.5 letters. It was a safety study, and all patients were pretreated with a steroid challenge. And we looked at the patients in general. What we found is that patients had about, essentially, we had 44% of patients who had, who had increased in IOP um, over 10, but the real thing had to do with IOP lowering surgery. And what you really found over time was that um, essentially you had 4% of people needing surgery. Um, three, about two and a half percent of those people were steroid induced, and one and a half was neovascular. And, you know, in terms of IOP lowering medicine, it was about 30% of patients over time. Actually, there were 21%, I apologize, of IOP greater than 10. But what we've, we've known this before. What we wanted to talk about was a new concept. And the new concept had to do with CST. The basic CST over time was statistically significant in terms of either looking at it drawing as a mean number or looking at the number of patients that were under 300. So I want to introduce some new topics that really are offshoots of CST. Because one thing is mean CST doesn't tell the whole story. So I want to introduce things called area under the curve, retinal thickness amplitude, and retinal thickness standard deviation. And they're all complementary ideas to CST. But they look at the idea of fluctuation, which is very important to correlate CST to vision. So area under the curve, in terms of area under the curve, if it really is equivalent to dryness over time. And if you look at people before they had their implantation and look at people after they had their implantation, there was a statistically significant reduction in the area under the curve, which means there was a statistically significant decreasing in swelling over time. Before the average CST was about 371 microns, after it was 336, and that difference was statistically significant. 
The other way we want to look at is something is we talk about this in terms of vision, because what we want to do is when you break people into quartiles, you're able to get the best way of comparing CST or OCT findings in general to visual acuity. So if you look at people who had the least amount of area under the curve or the least amount of swelling over time and compare it to those who had the most amount of swelling, those with the least amount of swelling actually gained 6.8 letters and those with the most amount of swelling actually lost 5.4 letters. The next topic I'm gonna to talk about is retinal thickness amplitude. And this really is equivalent to the maximum range of retinal fluctuation. Because when your retina fluctuates over time, you don't see as well. When we look at pre and post implantation of the flucinolin implant, what we saw is before they got the implant, their fluctuation was about 285 microns. But after the implant, it was 148 microns. And the difference was statistically significant. If you change that to vision, if you look at the top two quartiles, they both gain vision. So those people who had smaller retinal thickness amplitudes who were closer to the mean gain vision, while those in, in quartile three and four actually lost vision. So again, if you have less fluctuation, you seem to gain more vision. And then the third topic we're gonna to talk about is the standard deviation. This is equivalent to variations from the mean thickness over time. And again, pre-implantation, the retinal standard deviation was 91 microns. After the implant, it was 48.7 microns. This was standard deviation was statistically significant. And when you look at it in terms of quartiles, patients who were in the first quartile actually gained 7.9 letters, while patients in the fourth quartile gained 0.6 letters and patients in the third quartile lost letters. So essentially, if you're in the top two quartiles, you had less less standard deviation, which meant you stay closer to the mean. You had less yo-yoing. Think of it as almost dieting, right? If you have more of a normal weight, it's healthier for you than if you bounce up and down. The same thing is true with retinal thickness by OCT. If you're able to keep the thickness or the area under the curve or the standard deviation more level, more normalized, you're going to end up leading to much better visual outcomes. Then you look at supplemental therapy, and what was interesting, whether you looked at the area under the curve, the retinal thickness amplitude, or the retinal thickness standard deviation, the patients who were in the fourth quartile needed significantly more adjunctive therapies than the patients in the first quartile. So again, the patients who had more fluctuation needed more therapies because they were less stable, and that ended up leading to less improvement in visual acuity. So in conclusion, what we learned from this, the Paladin in general, and we learned from this analysis is that we know inflammation can lead to retinal damage and fluid accumulation, which leads to irreversible loss. And you know the, the implants seem to do a good job of controlling retinal thickness variability over the 36 months. And retinal thickness variability is correlated to improve visual outcomes and better disease control. And those who did better in terms of controlling their thickness had better vision. And the interesting thing is this is not a um, this is not just a alluvian story. It's also been brought up in an article by Starr and et al looked at you know the diabetes retina clinical network at protocols T and V and looked at the same concept as fluctuation in CST actually may pretend worse visions because those who had a lot of fluctuations actually lost vision compared to those who didn't have any fluctuations or, or small fluctuations in general. And this held true at both year one and year two. 
So this concept is obviously, it tells a little more to the story than the pure CST numbers. So alluvian is an excellent drying agent that works a good deal over time. That's one of the conclusions. Absolutely. And, and if you're the original Paladin trial, 25% of people went three years without supplementation. So in certain people, it does spectacularly well. In most people, it definitely decreases treatment burden. And if we can decrease treatment burden and keep you know the retinas drier, we can end up with better vision. But you know, there's a study that's really going to look at this. The New Day study, which is fully enrolled, is really going to answer these questions because the New Day study will look at people who are treatment naive and go head to head against aflibercept with the primary endpoint at 18 months with the number of supplemental aflibercept injections. This is fully enrolled. Hopefully in the next you know, 18 to 24 months, we'll have some answers because again, the problem with steroids is you've, you've explained, you know, you taught me over time is that they're usually relegated to when they, all the anti-VEGF doesn't work. So we never have given them their full due, see what happens in these treatment naive patients. What eyes are the best candidates for alluvian these days? I think, so my, I've always said the patients, the road to alluvian in my hands usually goes through Azurdex. When I look at people who are, you know, we know from a lot of studies, especially protocol T and protocol I, the early analysis, that about 30% of people, regardless of the anti-VEGF agent, have residual fluid. And if your patient falls into those category, I pretty much, you know, I try three injections of the strongest agent to let me try on the patient. And if I'm not making any progress, I'm going to quickly jump to a steroid. The first steroid I'm going to jump to is Osrodex. So I want to see if it works with Osrodex. And if I'm getting to do more than one Osrodex, you know, but a second Osrodex, I'm starting to think about going to Alluvian. My feeling about it is very important that I look at these two medicines quite differently. Even though they're both corticosteroids, the difference is Osrodex is a fire hose. So if you have a forest fire, you want a fire hose initially. But once you've got the fire under control, you want a drip system. You don't need a, a fire hose for little embers. That's how I look where Alluvian is. Alluvian is the long-term play. And all the patients I put on Alluvian have been on Osrodex before and are currently in the middle of their Osrodex treatment so that I don't have to get rebound edema. And I've been pretty lucky in terms of controlling a lot of these patients. And again, it definitely helps everybody, but the difference I can't, you know, there's a little bit of patient variability. For some people, it's a home run and I don't have to do any supplementation at all, but others need some, usually about nine to 12 months if they're going to need it. But the amount of supplementation is always less than it was before we started. Well, Alluvian definitely has a role in the management of diabetic macular edema. I'm delighted that Al Alamira sponsored the New Day trial, the head-on, the head-to-head -head trial comparing Alluvian to aflibercept. That's going to basically settle many debates. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's going to answer a lot of, to your point, all these unanswered questions because, because it's always been relegated as, you know, way down the line, you never had the potential to get the full visual acuity effect because we can dry everybody. But the problem is all this yo-yoing, um, I think, is photoreceptor damage. And, you know, we can look at OCTs and hyperreflective spots and difference in the ellipsoid zone layers, all these other things. But I think if we get people to start at the beginning, that's your best chance of really seeing how good it's going to do. And it'll be interesting to see from a visual acuity standpoint, is it comparable over time? And it'll be interesting to see, you know, how many extra shots are going to be needed in order in these patient population or will a good percentage be one and done?
Great. Michael, thanks a lot for your participation in retina synthesis. This was exciting. And we'll bring you back when we have the New Day data. I'm excited, Carmen. Always honored to be asked. It's always fun to talk to you.